to go right to the heart of it, Jesus never told me to love my religion. So it's really easy if I'm given a choice between loving a neighbor and loving my religion, I choose the neighbor. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone. This is Gary Allen, host of Holy Heretics, and it's a real joy to share this deconstruction and maybe even reconstruction space with you. If you're just joining us, Melanie and I created the Sophia Society and Holy Heretics podcast a couple of years ago in a way to form a community of individuals who hopefully are not only healing from evangelicalism, but who also have the strength and desire to explore and experience different forms of faith. And our hope along the way is to simply accompany you on this journey out of toxic religion and into deeper, more meaningful expressions of spirituality, which may or may not include Christianity. And I think many of us were simply unaware that there were other ways of being or other ways of seeing or other paths to follow uh, outside of white evangelicalism. And so hopefully we've been able to introduce you to a wider stream of spirituality over the last several years. And part of the way we are doing that this season is to center marginalized voices, black, LGBT, and female voices and bodies hoping to glean from their vantage point and their wisdom on the periphery of faith and culture, because it's their place outside of the center that has given them eyes to see and ears to hear what so many of us are blind to and even deaf to hear. And so far this season, we've talked to Dr. Christina Cleveland about the divine black feminine. We've listened to Roberto J. Espinoza discuss his transition and identity as a trans man and a Latinx scholar. And last week, Dr. Amy Jill Levine joined us to share about what it means to see Jesus in his Jewish perspective. So if you missed any of those critical conversations, go back and listen. I think you'll find them both meaningful and transformative. And today we're going to continue that conversation with really a a hero of mine, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor. Barbara Brown Taylor is the New York Times bestselling author of An Altar in the World, Learning to Walk in the Dark and Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. She has been many things, including an Avon lady, a cocktail waitress, a horseback riding instructor, and a parish minister. But her favorite job was teaching world religions at Piedmont College for 20 years before putting the chalk down in 2017. She now divides her time between writing, speaking, and caring for the land on which she lives. She and her husband, Ed, tend a small farm in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. But honestly, there's just a lot more to Barbara Brown Taylor than meets the eye. She is an incredible soul. Contemplative monk Thomas Merton once said, to be a saint is to be myself. And I think you can say that of of Barbara Brown Taylor. To be a saint is simply to be herself. If you've ever met her or spent any time with her, you realize right away that she's really different. There is something divine in her aspect and in her eyes. She's 
radiant. She's captivating. She's kind. She's one of those rare human beings that brings heaven down to earth. And in many ways, Barbara is who you want to be when you grow up. So we've done a, a few styles of episodes on this show. And just to be clear, this one is far more memoir than it is interview. So I hope you will pour yourself a warm beverage, nestle down by the fire if it's cold where you are, and share this sacred space with me as Barbara Brown Taylor gently invites us to see ourselves, our lives, and our faith as a long, evolving journey of deep discovery about what it means to be human. Well, Barbara, it is a delight to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Gary Allen. Well, I feel like we have sort of a kindred spirit here. We've got, it's Gary Allen Taylor, it's Barbara Brown Taylor, we're both Southerners. I mean, can I adopt you as my mom? Is that okay? Would you I mind think, that? Yes, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, call me Barbara in front of other people, but you can call me mom in private. That's okay. Yay. Okay, good, good. You, you made my day. Well, I'm curious, you have an extensive bio, um, an Episcopal priest, uh, professor, author, What's one thing that's not in your bio? Maybe one thing that you wish everyone knew about you? <laughs> if I wish everyone knew more about me, I'd be on social media. But <laughs> if you're asking about something that doesn't belong in my bio, it would probably be uh, my side gig as a maker of wind chimes and fused glass things. A lot of years ago, I decided... I had spent enough of my life on words and books and language and started handling colors and shapes and textures. So I have work in a couple of galleries in my little town, and it's just great fun. And And it's got a little spirit attachment to it because you need wind to make wind chimes sing. And you live in rural Georgia, is that correct? Yeah, I live in a county that is the same size now as it was when I moved here in 1992. So we have about 42,000 people in the county. Wow. And I live nine miles from a town of 1,500 people. So wow, I'm way out in the country, but um, have everything I need. You've had an interesting journey from being in the priesthood to where you are today. For for some of our list, listeners who are maybe just being introduced to you, would you mind sharing a little bit about your faith journey and how it's led you to where you are today? Hmm. A long pilgrimage, right? Peregrination. I was raised by parents who took me to libraries instead of churches to seek knowledge uh, and culture, not faith, so that when I <laughs> became a religion major in college, my mother turned to me and said, we did not raise you to be religious and you will get over this. So <laughs> maybe it was also a spirit of adolescent rebellion. But though I was raised that way, I I, I was stuck with a sense of, of more, more than met the eye, you know, things that went higher and deeper than my everyday experience. So I went to church with friends. I'm sure everybody did. I joined the Baptist church at 16, more out of love for a boy named Jack than for God. <laughs> um, I was shamed there pretty spectacularly and left certain, though, that there was a better way to seek more. So from then on, it was a a lot of visiting what are now known as mainline denominations. That's really all I had to choose from at that time. But 
by the time I was in seminary, not sure why I was there, except it seemed the best place to pursue more. Uh, I became an Episcopalian at 25, and I stayed put. So (laughs) ordination followed maybe seven, eight years later, and I've at least been in one church home since then. But prior to that, many, many church homes and a lot of going from place to place to place seeking. And are you still Episcopalian? Would you still identify with that tradition? Yeah, I, w- I mean, I'm still an Episcopal priest. You know, I yeah. celebrated a 30-something anniversary earlier this year. So um, I am retired from both teaching and full-time ministry. I, I suppose a better question would be, do I still identify as Christian? Well, I was going to go there, but I, I was going to softball you first. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those questions. It, it took teaching world religions for me to realize that Christianity was probably the most diverse global tradition mm. and that there were hundreds, probably thousands of ways to be Christian. So it's not enough these days to say, I'm Christian. We need to talk about what kind of Christian, what matters to us, what are the essentials, you know, what what do we have in common, what sets us apart. So I do identify as Christian because it's my language. And it um, is late in life to be changing primary languages, but I've loved learning a little bit of other people's languages so that we can talk about both things we have in common and differences. So that has included a lot of variety in in Christian tradition. I have met people in the last 10, 20 years I never knew a thing about, Mm -hmm. from people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Seventh-day Adventists and non-denominational Christians, post-evangelicals of many kinds. So it's a wide, wide Christian world, and uh, I still identify that way. Mm -hmm. You said you were a Christian. Um, What kind of Christian are you? I'm the kind of Christian that will never be fully cooked. I think I'm always evolving with the next person I meet, the next thing that happens, the next spin of the globe, the next book, the next upsetting experience that ushers me back into all that I don't know. So... um, We'll have a chance to talk about that further, but but I'm I'm clearly um, a person who believes that what we have most in common is our humanity, not our religion, and that um, makes me really interested in other ways that people step into their humanity with one another across boundaries. And Christian tradition has been helpful to me in that way too. That's the way I read my tradition is to go right to the heart of it. Jesus never told me to love my religion. So (laughs) it's really easy if I'm given a choice between loving a neighbor and loving my religion, I choose the neighbor. Mm. Because my religion told me so. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, let's talk about that human factor, because you've written a lot about what it means to be human. I, I have quoted you a hundred times that matter matters to God, that we are enfleshed bodily people. Um, what does becoming fully human mean to you and, and look like to you? Part of that for me was a reaction to people saying, well, what did you expect? I'm just human. <laughs> and so they treated being human as a a disability of some kind or a 
a problem. And it occurred to me that if we are made just a little lower than the angels and we are made in the image of the divine, that it's quite something to be human and easy also to get arrogant about being human, but that's no excuse for living into maybe the the root word, which is to have our feet on the ground Mm. and neither to think more of ourselves nor less of ourselves than than the best that is in us. So I'm going to read an, an excerpt from one of, I would say it's my favorite book that you wrote, An Altar in the World. And I'd love for you to just respond to this. And I know it's a little bit awkward for authors to have to respond to things they've written like, well, I wrote it. That's what I meant. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this and just get your gut reaction to it. So in An Altar in the World, you write, whoever you are, you are human. Wherever you are, you live in the world which is just waiting for you to notice the holiness in it. So welcome to your own priesthood, practiced at the altar of your own life. The good news is that you have everything you need to begin. When you hear that now, years after you've written it, what does it mean to you? I would probably change some words in that quote now um, to make it uh, sound a little more down to earth, but I mean everything in it largely because both in Christian life and life more universally, I keep meeting people who don't feel fully equipped yet to live their lives. They need to be smarter or have more tools or more divine guidance or clearer instructions. And I suppose my life has been an experience of I learn by doing. So I think getting busy with recognizing the holiness all around us, which includes then giving up a whole lot of divisions between the holy and the unholy and the earthly and the heavenly and the human and the divine, and to erase some of those markers that put everything into matched pairs like salt and pepper, only not that good because it should be salt and poison, I guess, (laughs) if you're hanging on to those dualities. But um it seems to me that being human in the world with other people and with all creation gives us all the opportunity we need to hold things up, to hold things up and say blessings over them and share them and give thanks. Hmm. Too idealistic? No, I like it. Well, you also mentioned something about binaries and dualism and I don't really know what question to ask about that, but it does feel like that one of the awakenings as uh, part of being human is really realizing that most of life has is given to us in kind of false binaries or dichotomies, you know, right, left, um, black, white, good, bad, gay, straight. How has your spiritual journey allowed you to um, find a third way between that? Because, I mean, it, it's we see it socially, we see it sexually, we see it obviously politically here in the West that you have to choose this or choose this. And uh, as, as I continue to mature spiritually, I'm beginning to realize and see that so much of life is just a false choice. And if I am ever going to mature uh, personally, professionally, spiritually, I need to find a third way, or at least I need to transcend um, the whole notion of, of false binaries. H- has that been the case as well for you? And, and if so, how did you how did you first maybe recognize that and then transcend that? Hmm. 
if I'm going to love my neighbor, it's extremely important to ditch my stereotypes. Where I live in a very red county, and I vote blue, which means my vote has never counted in 25 years. (laughs) But we, we do a lot of judging one another by our yard signs. And I am so weary of that particular dichotomy. We can stretch it in other directions. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's because we don't have three political parties Hmm. in this country. But at the moment, I find many of what used to be religious arguments now coming out as political arguments instead. And I've made apologies for where I live. People from the city visit and say, oh, isn't it hard to live here with all these signs in people's yards? And I say, well, I met them as grandparents first, or I get my eggs from them, or they they volunteer at the public library, or they run for, for public office. They're on the zoning board. They've made great decisions about my neighborhood. And I'm just reaching for other ways to see other people because the the I think we do binaries because they're easy, they define one another. I, first time I taught the yin-yang symbol in world religions class, <laughs> you just put up that that symbol that has is half white and half black. And and most North American Christians will tell you that's good and evil. Mm. And that the goal is for the white to wipe out the black, which is already an unhelpful <laughs> binary. But in fact, in that tradition, balance is the goal, to keep them each alive and and next to each other with a spot of the other in itself. So it's a vision of wholeness instead of a division within the difference of the spectrum. So I find ways to challenge binaries in my own tradition, which has been rife with them. My Jewish friends say, ah, that's because you're really not Jewish Christians, you're Greek Christians. You took our tradition, you became Greeks, and then Christianity grew out of your your Greek side, which did a lot of dividing into halves. Right. But what you said, we just need to put a gold rim around it, that's, that was really good. We're dedicating this entire season to listening to and trying to center individuals whose whose faith or praxis or beliefs have have pushed them to uh, the outside. I, I'm curious to to know if if and when in your life you've ever been the outsider. I know you referenced it at the the beginning of the conversation about not being welcomed in I think it was the Baptist church, but um, when have you experienced being an outsider and then what did that experience do to help reframe or refocus your view and belief of the divine? Mm-hmm. I love that question. And to tag the Baptist church experience, that was one kind of Baptist church. Guess what? There turned out to be as many kinds of Baptists as there are Christians <laughs> and human beings. So that was um, that was a hard time at a hard time in the culture. That was um, the 1970s when culture was falling apart and runaways were gathering in downtown Atlanta. And my particular shaming there was bringing some of those runaways to church and finding out that all were not welcome there, <laughs> as as the sign out front had said. So I want to exonerate um, my adjective there. That was a church where I got a real early and actually, from this perspective, helpful taste of being asked to leave because it kept me moving. 
I think the most important thing, I mean, I would mention there was a time when being a woman interested in ordination put me outside the ranks of what was possible or legal in my chosen denomination. Mm. There was a time when my writing about nature earned me a kind of outsider status of being pagan or pantheist. Mm -hmm. But I think it was leaving parish ministry unexpectedly in 1997 and becoming a, a college teacher that really, really made me a creative outsider by pulling me outside my comfort zone mm. to to move from being solo pastor of a church to being one on a faculty of 100 people was to lose everything from my daily costume to my parking place to my title to <laughs> my position behind a pulpit in front of an altar and a cross to being mm. a teacher of religion with people of faith and no faith and different faiths and even pronouns that used to work didn't work anymore. I couldn't say we believe or we are called to or as our scripture says. <laughs> so I was welcomed really to see what I had loved and given my life to for 15, 20 years, not in a negative light, but as a container that was smaller than I had ever imagined. i I, for the first time, began to see all the people my beloved tradition left out. And it was, a, at first, a, a disorienting experience and then a very welcome one and a privileged one because I've gotten to move between communities of faith in ways that most full-time pastors don't get to. They get to know a congregation well, but don't get to know you know, things outside their chosen tradition. So outsider status ended up really being like um, pilgrim status. Mm. You mentioned something off air that I would love to know more about. Um, you told me that you were surprised um, on some level that you have been invited to speak to and have become a voice for the deconstruction community, the ex-evangelical community. I, I find that to be kind of interesting that that you would not know that you are in many ways and I'm not trying to flatter you here but but really a, a a hero to many of us because of your walk because of your books why have you found that to be surprising to you that you are so popular uh, with the evangelical or deconstruction community hmm, it's a great question I think it's because as a mainline episcopalian what could be further? <laughs> right know, from the place where many evangelicals started, mm. because I certainly had a strong um, taste of that. I mean, I, I had another conversion in college at the hands of the Navigators, who make their home in Colorado Springs, don't they? They do. They're right down the road, along with every other evangelical group. <laughs> so I, in some ways, you know, turned from that toward a much more formal, highly liturgical critical way of reading scripture. You know, it seemed very different for me. So I was surprised. And to, to be not a voice for the deconstruction movement, but a voice invited to speak, mm. you know, within the community. And here's what I came to is in everything I've written, I think it's clear that I'm a Bible junkie, that I really love scripture. Mm -hmm. And that um, 
I don't speak of the Christ. I'm happy to talk about Jesus. And I think that both of those things, and probably since you're a Southerner, being a Southerner, there, there's something about the passion mm. in, in the best forms of evangelicalism. The, there's even a hospitality mm. at the heart of some forms of evangelism that says, bring the world on. I'm not going to isolate myself off in a corner. I want to be be in the fray and I want to do my best to embody my faith. So so I think I I retained um, a love for some things that I have in common with the post-evangelical community and perhaps some things that they're attracted to. I mean, Rachel Held Evans was really my way in, I think. Mm. She and I ended up at a conference together and through her I met Sarah Bessie and Jeff Chu and through them, I met people who speak at Evolving Faith, and it, it rolled on from there. But it's been such an enlivening experience, you know, decades and decades into my, my life and my way of seeing and practicing faith. So it's been a great gift. And again, I consider myself an outsider to the community, which is one of the added blessings. Nobody has to listen to me because I'll just go home to the Episcopal Church. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but it's sort of a joke within the deconstruction community that the 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 next door is Episcopalianism, that there's so many of us, and I'm one of those. I'm I left evangelicalism. In fact, I was at a place where I, I was like done with church because I didn't know there was anything else out there. And my wife, God bless her soul, was not ready to give up. And uh, one Sunday morning, she wakes up and I'm like, well, I'm not going anywhere. And she's like, well, I'm going to church. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, where are you going to go? And so she got out a map and looked and there was an Episcopal church like five minutes from us. And she said, well, I don't know anything about these people, but I'm going. She came back and said, uh, we found our people. I found our, our our tribe. And I'm like, what? And from there, you know, that was about eight years ago, we have become more and more immersed in the Episcopal tradition. And what I find fascinating about it is it holds these two things in intention. It's highly uh, inclusive. Um, it's progressive. It's theologically rich. It's intellectual. And so you would say on one hand, it's very progressive and liberal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the other, you walk into the church and the liturgy and the tradition and the use of the Book of of Common Prayer and and all of the uh, traditions of the church come together. And it's actually really conservative on, on that level. And I find that that is just a beautiful paradox that has kept me in in the faith and and it's also what i'm seeing is other ex-evangelicals are finding that as well so i don't know i maybe i'll do a show just on what does it mean to be an episcopalian but (laughs) i i think there's a a connection there with who you are and what you've stood for and and the deconstruction community so that's that's a long way around uh, endorsing that so you did a good job of summarizing what drew me because again i was a convert i didn't find the episcopal church till i was in my early 20s and what i was attracted to after going through a lot of churches that had formal confessions of belief and doctrinal statements and and boxes you had to check to belong I walked in the Episcopal Church and was not only drawn by the the liturgy you're describing, but also that the book in the pews was the Book of Common Prayer. 
And and soon I learned that that meant if you pray with us, you're part of us. Mm-hmm. And there was a catechism in the back if I got bored and wanted to read something while announcements were going on, but <laughs> there was no requirement to check the boxes. I mm. I was welcomed into what I think of as a broad way that had ancient feet on it. Mm. And and that that was my paradox was a a community that felt so open and yet was so ancient in its roots because I did learn quickly Henry VIII didn't invent um the Celtic way, which is the way that Anglicanism grew out of. So uh, we can get into that in, on your show about Ep- Episcopalians. Yes, but yes. It's, um, but it's been a broad enough way to walk through a lot of changes in life. So mm, I love that. I'm glad it's a attractive thing. Yep. So our show is called Holy Heretics. You know that now. Um, I'm curious, is there one belief or spiritual praxis that you hold that – would make folks think you are a heretic? First of all, I love holy heretics. Uh, This morning, (laughs) getting ready to talk to you, I tried to find an old t-shirt I'd seen on somebody and tried to buy it off them. (laughs) And it had a list of heretics on the back (laughs) that included Pelagius and Galileo and Joan of Arc, and even Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, and they were all heretics. And yeah. A lot of them have been forgiven now, but it was such a great crowd. I wanted to be part of them, but the T-shirt seems to have vanished, so <laughs> I didn't get it in time. Now, um, I, I, I identify as a contrarian, and we can talk about that later. It's right next door to a heretic. Um, but I, I think now I was surprised to look up a Wikipedia entry on myself and find myself identified as a a, a panentheist. Mm -hmm. I thought, that's interesting. I wonder who typed that in there. (laughs) But it would be not that, but pantheism that would make me officially a heretic, Mm. that that I do believe the Spirit of God lives in all that God has made. And that makes me more, what, Native American in terms of praying with all my relations Mm. with rocks and trees and rivers and mountains and deer and chickens and all my relations. So that would make me a pantheist there. It's it's as good a way to be a heretic as any, right? Is there a difference between pantheism and panentheism? Yeah, and isn't it a little, I mean, that's just a little theologically boring thing, but pantheism officially means God is everything. Everything is God. Yeah, okay. And panentheism means God is in everything. Everything is in God. So there's a preposition in that that rescues panentheism from official heresy. Ah, that makes okay. <laughs> but it's a it's a little word trick, don't you think? Yeah, completely, <laughs> completely. But I don't worship trees. I worship with trees. Mm. Do do you um, name trees? Do you talk to trees? My wife talks to trees. Oh yeah, trees are enjoying a real moment of of global love right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about all the books that came out. You know, they started with braiding sweetgrass, and now right. there are books called the Mother Tree and Fiction, the Overstory. And I think there are ways in which trees are our elders, and and connect us in a a web of life that is not always visible. We can get all the way from the canopy down to the the web of stuff under the earth. But I'm happy she talks to trees. I hope they talk back. 
If your listeners are not familiar with John Philip Newell, mm-hmm. he's um, a wonderful champion of the Celtic way. And people can start with a thin little book called Listening for the Heartbeat of God. Yep. And okay. it's, a, it's a lovely introduction to what you are describing. It leads me to believe that when we started putting roofs on churches, we started to lose our ways mm-hmm. because at least in the the Celtic tradition, worshiping in sacred groves and by sacred wells and with the wind blowing and a lot of animals around, by the way. Those <laughs> Celtic saints had their pets. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh it's it's a wonderful imaginative exercise, even if some people who call ourselves Celtic Christians invented the tradition because there are no written records, you know, except Pelagius, right? And and a long, fat book of of Irish prayers from that time, but it's imaginatively rich. I want to ask you maybe one or two uh, more serious questions, and then maybe pivot to to just some some quick get to know you um, questions, if that's okay with you. Will that work? Mm-hmm. You've written a lot about darkness and the dark, and those writings remind me of the apophatic tradition or this idea that we don't necessarily find God by adding things, but we find and see and experience God through sub- subtraction or negation. And I think that's a that's new to many of us. What has darkness and or suffering taught you about the divine? Mm. Those are very different words to me. As you know, I wrote a book called Learning to Walk in the Dark. Mm-hmm. And most authors don't know what their books are about till they go on book tour afterwards and people talk to them about the book. But I found out how many people equated those two. Darkness and suffering, darkness and chaos, darkness and depression. And my thesis in that book was different, that darkness is the way of unknowing, mm. which is another way of talking about the apophatic tradition. It's, it's the way you set your feet on, though you don't know for sure where you're going. And you're not certain that you're on the right path, and you know for sure that you don't know all there is to know about God. And you shed a lot of beliefs along the way as you acquire wisdom and experience and new friends. So for me, uh, darkness is the state I find myself in. Um, when I don't know what's coming next, which turns out to be the human condition. And so so is suffering. So maybe they have that in common. Um, what darkness has taught me is that it is it is fine to slow down enough in the dark to to feel my way instead of thinking my way forward and to trust that experience will shape my beliefs in the way that beliefs used to shape my experience. Hmm. Suffering is is not a spiritual practice I would choose, but it seems unavoidable. And, And that one has ended up being a great gift of bringing me into community. I think the hardest thing about suffering is the idea that we're alone in it, or it's never been like this for anybody else. So suffering at its best brings us into community, not only with people we need to ask for help, but people we can offer help to, and not not top-down help, but side-by-side help mm. as we, you know, walk, walk together. So you've led me into saying that I think the apophatic tradition is about giving up a lot of 
formulas, ideas, certainties, beliefs about the way and walking the way, asking for help and companionship and wisdom all the way. What you just said reminded me of a poem by Mary Oliver. I'll butcher it, but she says something like this. Someone I love once gave me a box full of darkness, and it took me years to understand that this too was was a gift. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you're pointing to, that we can find gifts and goodness and even times of transformation when we are in the dark and we're not sure where we're going? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also, oh, we're looking at another binary, right? Dark mm, and light. Mm, yeah, right. Well, of course, because like I'm automatically assuming dark is bad. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there, there are two things to say about that. One is it's really helpful for people to look in their folders marked darkness and see what's in there and interrogate why that's in there. And what I have found is there are a great number of beautiful things that belong in that folder that only happen in the dark. Um, walking that book around the country, I heard from college chaplains who had started having discussions in the evening with the lights turned down low or by candlelight in which people said things they'd never said out loud to other people before. Hmm. Um Lots of people fall in love in the dark. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of fun things happen in the dark too, right? Like, No kidding. Why do we close our eyes when we kiss? I mean, most of us right. do. It's creepy when people don't. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of, of beautiful stuff there. But the second thing happened uh, was um, someone asked me about Twilight and where Twilight was in that book. Isn't that genius? Like, yeah. give up the binary. You were talking about third things earlier. Mm. And actually, twilight is a third and a fourth thing because it happens twice a day. It happens mm. as dark turns to light and light turns to dark. So um, that has become intriguing to me, too, is look at what's in the folder, what's missing from the folder. Why did you put that stuff in there? Is there a better word for what you're afraid of mm. than darkness? And then what about twilight? as a way station between light and dark, probably as a way station on the apophatic way, right? There's There are Jewish teachers who say twilight in the Talmud is a, is a dangerous and, and fertile time because it's when you can't see things fully and you may mistake a friend for an enemy mm. or an enemy for a friend. So it calls for particularly acute attention to where you are. So Lots to recommend itself between darkness and light and between what? Happiness and suffering. Mm. All right. Last sort of formal question. And then I want to jump into some uh, a little bit more personal, lighthearted ones to to close out. Um, So here's what I think of when I think of Barbara Brown Taylor. I think of someone who's got a smile on her face, full of wonder deep thinker, um, someone that is just happy and content and in love with being here in this world, someone full of wonder. And and I'm not saying this to like flatter you. I, I'm saying this because like you even even your voice, like your tone, your posture is one of humble, beautiful wonder and just kind of looking out at the world and going, wow, what am I going to experience today? Uh, how have you cultivated that that posture? And and how has that become so infused in 
your humanity here on this planet? I want to be that person you just described. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I think you talked about Mary Oliver. She's the one that taught me. She wrote poems that people called self-revelatory, but she said, oh, no, that's my persona. Mm. And what she meant by that is that there are a lot of things we wrestle with out of the public eye and acquire the wisdom to speak of it in the public eye. But I think you described my persona. Hmm. And what it doesn't show is the cost of having a vivid imagination, <laughs> of having a vocation that put me in a lot of morgues and prisons and um, ICUs and by a lot of deathbeds and and the cost of attention to what's happening around me mm. um, that is not always about thriving, but also about withering. So, so the part you can't see in, in that lovely portrait you just painted of me is the cost of coming to some of those provisional conclusions. I think you've also just unearthed my primary faith statement, which is something like, I choose to believe the universe is for me mm. and not against me. Therefore, I will look at what has just happened and search it for the ways in which it exposes something I need to know. It limits me in some way that is true, and it evokes me in some way that will bear fruit. And that makes it hard to call things good or bad anymore if I if I believe the universe is for me, not against me. And that's only one step away from saying everything happens for a reason, right? Which I will just <laughs> throw up if anybody <laughs> says that to me. So, Yeah, yeah, same. So it's funny how we tweak things around to sort of get to the same truth, but put different language on it so we can live with it. But... But I, um, but I do wake up curious every day of my life, hmm. and I wake up attentive, and I wake up with wonder. And um, it's hard to say from a position of such privilege, but my mind goes to suffering pretty fast. There's something about being a person of a certain age in here, and I don't want to forecast the future, but pandemic gave us all an experience of being shut in mm. and mortal and in a position of thinking about our resources for survival and our purpose in life. In We've got a crash course in all of those things. And it's sort of a um, prelude to aging, which is when the phone calls about ill friends and the funerals yeah. start stacking up. And the time ahead is so much shorter than the time behind that it's time to get really serious about things. So, so the wonder and the dedication to being amazed and the commitment to staying curious is also about staying alive when time is short. Mm. So that's an old spiritual piece of wisdom, though, isn't it? Mm. I think the Benedictines said, every day keep your death before you. You know, not to make you a grim reaper, but to make you aware of the preciousness of what you have. So, yeah. Wow. There, do something with that. 
<laughs> Thank you for that. All right. So we have a tradition on the show where we kind of end with some just I'm not they're not really fun, but they're more personal questions. So if you're OK, we'll we'll ask just three or four personal questions, um, kind of rapid fire, but you can go as long as you want. And and then we'll we'll end in with that. So first kind of rapid fire question. Um, who's your favorite author? Today is November 7th. The answer changes every day. <laughs> I finish yesterday's book and start today's book. And Geraldine Brooks is now my favorite fiction writer. John O'Donohue survives oh, as my yes. favorite poetry writer. Cole Arthur Riley is one of my new favorites with her book called This Here Flesh. Mm. And I've just read a theology book by a guy named Mark Williams who wrote a book called When God Was a Bird, mm. Christianity, Animism, and the Reenchantment of the World. So there's a real assortment for you. But I have favorite authors in many genres, and they're on a carousel of change. Next kind of rapid fire question. Um, the world is a little strange right now. So what gives you hope? I gain hope from seasons and cycles and having lived long enough to watch them come around and around and around so that despair doesn't kick in as early as it once did. Mm -hmm. um, I gain hope from enduring love, love that lasts for decades and decades, and love that loses parts of itself for whom it loves. Mm. I, I find hope in all those things, and, and strangely, I especially remain hopeful because things change. And unfortunately, that means when things are going well, they're going to change. And when they're <laughs> right. not going well, they're going to change. So yeah. I have to take both ends of the wheel. But it's still a great, great comfort to wake up to a day that's different from yesterday. Mm. All right. What is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Oh, again, depending on what day that poor young woman needed my help. But I think <laughs> I would buy her a T-shirt that said, the perfect is the enemy of the good, Barbara. Oh, I love that. I think that. Voltaire said that. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Mm. I have not learned that yet. <laughs> oh, I certainly haven't. All right. Last last question. I am actually just hit mourning that I'm going to have to end this conversation with you. Um, but the last uh, rapid fire question, what is next for Barbara Brown Taylor? I think my work life is about done. Hmm. And that ends up being almost a retirement from... <laughs> the world of productivity and and meaning and purpose. Everybody I talk to wants to know what project I'm working on. And, and if I can count to 10, I say, my project right now is not to have a project. <laughs> <laughs> if you talk about the apophatic way, I do think that um, there comes a time in life when we're not good at it at all, yeah. when it's it's time to live into that old adage about being instead of doing. Mm. Mm. but it doesn't get you much respect in the world. So what's next for me is um, pursuing a biblical concept of Sabbath. What does it mean to rest in the presence of God and not to earn my keep? Mm. I love that. That seems like a worthy project. That's next for Barbara Brown Taylor. I love that. Well, 
thank you so much for joining me. This has been selfishly amazing for me. As, as I said off air, you are in the pantheon of spiritual giants and, and my book and your life, your words, um, your preaching, your uh, your books have meant so much to so many people. You've given us hope. Um, you have uh, dared to invite us to see the world through the lens of amazement and wonder. And it's just been a, a true joy of mine to share this little space with you. And I pray that whatever is next for you, that that you would experience it in fresh ways and continue uh, to invite the rest of us uh, into uh, seeing the world through through your lens. So thank you so much for being here with me. It's been a, it's been a true true treat. I take that prayer completely to heart. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.